This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. It is the Subway to Shea podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happenings surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets. Episode 114 from the Subway to Shea studio in my office. It's been a little over two weeks since the last episode. My apologies on that. I had a podcast planned last week. I had an interview with Ed Cranepool about his new book, The Last Miracle, my 18-year journey with the amazing New York Mets. Had a little bit of technical difficulties issues with his phone, issues with my computer, but I'm going to release those clips in a little bit of shorts on on my YouTube page, so stay tuned for that. Uh, This episode was supposed to be about how the Mets could, you know, shape their pitching staff for 2024, but I'm going to put that on pause and on that for either next week or maybe even the offseason. Still a ways away, but, you know, we with the way the Mets have been playing, it's just, you know, we're all thinking about moving into the offseason. Not much to talk about with the current state of the New York Mets as they they were buried by the Braves like they've been burying us all season long, letting Marcelo Suna, all of all people, getting hit after hit after big hit, uh, allowing, you know, their pitchers to hit our stars and doing nothing about it. I wish there was some fight in this team, you know, hit back, ruffle some feathers, get into a scuffle once in a while, you know, but they just kind of laid down to the Braves this season. They finished three and 10, which is very disappointing. Uh, It actually began in the series last season at the end of the year, that three game set in Atlanta, the Mets have never been the same since. And, you know, the Braves have been owning the Mets for most of my existence, but even when they were winning division titles in the late nineties, the Mets had some fight with the Piazzas, Alfonso's, Olerud's, Ventura's of the world. I don't see that with this team. And, you know, maybe, maybe it was fitting that on August 24th, the Mets announced that they will be retiring, not one, but two numbers. Number 18 for Daryl Strawberry, number 16 for Dwight Gooden. And here to discuss this well-overdue announcement is the author and writer of many Mets books, including Piazza, Catcher Slugger, Icon Star, uh, Amazing Again, How the 2015 New York Mets Brought the Magic Back to Queens, uh, Volume 1 of The Happiest Recap, and Faith in Fear and Flushing. And you can also read his words on his blog of the same name, Faith in Fear in Flushing. And you can hear him alongside Jeff Heisen on the National League Town Podcast. It's Greg Prince. Greg, welcome to the Subway to Shape Podcast. How are you, my friend? Hey, Anthony. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Hope you. I, I hope I did your intro there a little bit of justice. Talked about your books and and what you got going on. Uh, Greg's latest piece for Faith and Fear and Flushing uh, blog is all about Doc and Daryl, titled. Swedish dreams were made of them. It's a must read. And I will leave a link in the description of this week's episode. So please check it out. Greg, what was your initial reaction to the announcement that Doc and Darrow would have their numbers retired? Uh, My very first reaction was surprise because I had no idea this was coming. Uh, You know, just another day in Mets land in 2023 after a loss and before another loss. So uh, this was unexpected news but it once i processed it it was a very nice pick-me-up especially for somebody who lived through and remembers the extent of both uh, doc's and daryl's careers i don't want to concentrate too much on the negatives between the two because this is a happy announcement and they've come so far along since then but like did you think that this day would come that both of these numbers would be retired I hadn't really thought about it in terms of 18 and 16 all that much. Once we visited the desert from 41 going up in 1988 to 31 going up in 2016, in that period, between Seaver and Piazza, I wondered if another number would ever be retired. Once we got Piazza up there... I wondered if another number would be retired beyond those two. Uh, 
the Jerry Kuzman announcement in 2019 seemed to serve as an unlock uh, ahead of the Steve Cohn ownership a little bit. And since then, you know, we've had a few Kuz uh, whose number didn't go up till 21 because of COVID, and then Keith, and then Willie in, in 2022, and now this one. So while I, I've been sated, you might say, uh, from my thought of why don't the Mets ever honor their history, uh, I'm delighted. And if I were to stop and think about it, if you asked me three days ago, uh, the day before the announcement, and you said, who else could possibly go up there? Uh, 18 and 16 for Daryl and Doc would be on the very short list, uh, given the extent of their Mets careers, their Mets accomplishment, the place they hold in Mets history. So I'm, I'm glad somebody was on it. We have the unfortunate, I guess, of being crosstown rivals to the New York Yankees, and they you know, retire a lot of numbers. They have a lot of history from a lot of big players on their team. And you know, before we got to, I would say, Kuzman, which, like you said, opened things up, You know, the Mets, it was Seaver, it was Piazza. Obviously, they had Gil Hodges, and they also had Casey Stangle in there. And I think uh, William Shea is also, he, he doesn't have a number retired but he does have the Shea plaque up there um and Jackie Robinson which is just unanimous but I don't know how much you know from this if the Wilpons that there was I don't know if there's some story that the Wilpons would not give anyone uh retired numbers unless they made it into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame or the National Baseball Hall. is that something that it, it, does that ring true was that like a true story or is that just something that maybe was uh, a rumor I think it's an urban myth because the only one who had his number up there was Seaver, and Seaver was in the hall, and Seaver wore a met on his back, rightly so, and nobody for the longest time. And it always struck me as odd that the franchise, I'm not talking about Seaver now, but the franchise, lowercase f, their greatest team, most spectacular team, one of their two world champions, and certainly their most extraordinary in terms of regular season accomplishments and the era they played in, the 1986 Mets had zero players retired zero numbers retired and this could have been rectified really anytime after the primary players from that team began to retire as players and the first time it really came up i think was when gary carter number eight went into the hall of fame and there was some thought that they felt stop issuing number eight and gary carter might go in as a med and the next step would be number eight going up uh that didn't happen he went in as an expo it wasn't his choice necessarily and i think after that uh well a the mets did not retire his number although they did take it out of circulation and b there was this sense of well you got to go into the hall of fame as a met to get your number retired but uh, I don't know that it was ever written down anywhere. I, I liken it to the idea that the seats in City Field are green as a tribute to the polo grounds, which was never any part of the plans that were released publicly. Uh, Wilpon and the Mets got a lot of flack for making their ballpark an homage to Ebbets Field and having nothing about the other New York National League ballpark where their franchise was born. And suddenly this idea that the green seats were, oh, that, that's because of the polo grounds. No, they were green because they wanted them to be green. So once Piazza got number 31, uh, both retired and he went into the Hall of Fame, I think it kind of seemed that way that, oh, you know, this is what has to happen. Well, if, if that's all you're waiting on for the machinations of either the baseball Writers Association of America to certify your legends, or for whichever veterans committee has sway to certify your legend, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. You might as well have taken number 14 down all those years if, if that's the way you were mm -hmm. going to look at it, because number 14 wasn't in the Hall of Fame, unfortunately, until very recently. So I think that just became one of those excuses or alibis or whatever you would want to call it. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned the, the crosstown rivals. Uh, I think there's always been a perverse sense of pride by Mets fans in that we hadn't retired that many numbers because they retired <laughs> so many numbers without really doing a little bit of digging and noticing, you know what, they had an awful lot of success and an awful lot yeah. of great players. And I don't really begrudge any other franchise their own policy. Uh, the Yankees can do it the way they want to. The Diamondbacks can do it the way they want to. Any franchise can do it the way they want to. The only one I'm concerned with is the Mets because this is my team. 
and I've seen these players, uh, almost all of them, uh, from pretty close to the beginning at this point. So again, once once Jerry Kuzman, who you know what, you can make a, a Hall of Fame case if you're really in the mood. Uh, who would, I don't think was on anybody's radar in terms of having his number retired when they made that announcement in 2019. But you know, you start to examine the impact he had, the reverence he was held in by his teammates, his contribution to two of the greatest seasons in Mets history, and his overall numbers. Yeah, why hadn't we retired number 36? Don't tell me it wasn't. It was because well, Jerry Kuzman only got X number of votes for the Hall of Fame. So if we step away from that as a rationale, then you're in a different, no pun intended, ballpark. You were thinking about impact on the organization, the franchise, the on-field product, the fans, all of those things. And to bring it back to why we're here today, you could not do better in that regard than the two players whose numbers are going to be hanging up there next year. Well, let's look at their uh, stats. I kind of wrote down their stats from just their time as New York Mets. Daryl Strawberry, eight years uh, from 1983 to 1990, 263 batting average, 252 home runs, 733 RBIs, Rookie of the Year, seven-time All-Star as a Met, two-time Silver Slugger as a Met. He finished second in the MVP voting in 88, third in 1990. Then you go to Dwight Gooden, 11 years with the Mets, 84 to 94 157 and 85 with a 310 era a rookie of the year four-time all-star Cy young he had the era title as well in 85 and uh, the pitching triple crown uh which was in 1985 24 wins 153 uh, era and 268 strikeouts i want to go back to the beginning because it's definitely relevant to today we kind of are spoiled now that we get to see these prospects grow before our eyes with the internet and getting to see clips of them almost daily so when when and how did you first start, you know, hearing about Doc and Daryl being on the rise and how big, I guess, the hype was, the anticipation for their arrival? Okay. First, I have to take a damn cloth and dab my forehead from the ecstasy I'm feeling hearing those statistics and being reminded just <laughs> how great those players' careers were. Uh, you know, Daryl Strawberry rose to Mets fan consciousness probably the moment he rose to the consciousness of every baseball fan who picked up a copy of the 1980 Sports Illustrated Baseball preview issue, because therein was a, a sidebar uh, to an article called Stars of the 80s, uh, which was highlighting those players who at the time were the young and rising stars of baseball, one of whom was Keith Hernandez, by the way, who had just won the batting title, who was on the cover of that issue. But there's a sidebar of this high school kid in Southern California named Daryl Strawberry, and it was pointed out that Daryl Strawberry was eligible to be the number one pick in the nation uh, in the June draft. The June draft, by the way, was not a huge deal at the time, as much as the June draft pales in comparison to this day to what they do in the NFL and the NBA. It was a whole lot smaller on the radar uh, compared to what it is now and what it has become over the years. But once in a while, you would hear about a player and if you were a Mets fan, you would fantasize, I wonder if we can get that player. And then you realized, you know what? The Mets had the worst record in the National League last year. I do believe the Mets have the first pick in the draft this year. As a result, they used to alternate it by leagues. So all I'm thinking at that point in April of 1980 is, I hope they, they don't do something ridiculous and pick somebody else because this guy sounds too good to be true. M mind you, based on this one article, because there was an echo chamber that developed thereafter where anytime you'd read anything about the upcoming draft, Daryl Strawberry's name continued to be mentioned. There were a few others, one of whom was Billy Bean. And there was some talk, well, maybe the Mets will take Billy Bean with that first pick. And I'm thinking, don't do that. <laughs> pick, pick the right guy. And mind you, I've never seen either one of them. And as it happens, that June, the Mets do pick Daryl Strawberry with that number one pick. And Billy Bean is still available, and the Mets have extra picks in the first round because of compensation for free agent signings. And they do get Billy Bean, among others. So... Strawberry is right there as the future from that moment forward, once he is a part of the Mets organization. And th this won't sound like a lot to the modern ear, because 
we see how SNY, for example, after every single game brings us highlights of down mm -hmm. on the farm tonight. And you would think every top prospect we have is batting a thousand because they never show you anything where they're not doing something great. Uh, Newsday, I remember, sent a reporter to Kingsport, Tennessee to cover Daryl Strawberry's professional debut. No paper ever sent anybody to cover anything in the minor leagues in those days. So right away, it was a big deal. And of course, anytime you would hear about Daryl Strawberry between 1980 and that moment in May of 1983 when he came up, you're just thinking, did he hit another home run? And you were a little distressed if you heard that, well, he's having some problems developing, struggling, as all young players do, because all you were waiting on was Daryl Strawberry. And, you know, I, I can tell you this for, from, I, I think I'm right about this. I, I know I'm right from, from the part that we can prove, or at least experientially prove. We've never looked forward to any prospect coming to the major leagues the way we look forward to Daryl Strawberry. That includes Greg Jeffries, who I know is hugely hyped. That includes Jose Reyes and David Wright. It was just our future depended on it. And the part I can't prove is that we'll never again have a Daryl Strawberry that houring a figure making that much of a difference to our perception. Again, we didn't know. We didn't know that if he was going to turn out to be a great player. We didn't know if he was going to turn out to be Sean Abner, another number one pick in the nation who we had, who we wound up trading and didn't really turn out to have a great major league career. But uh, th those first few years in the minors, it, it felt like you were a Mets fan on two levels in those days. You were a Mets fan for whoever was on the 80, 81, 82, 83 Mets uh, before May. And you wanted to know when Daryl Strawberry would get here. Um, Dwight Gooden, I don't recall quite the same breathless anticipation for. That might be just me. I don't remember a whole lot of coverage. I mean, his name was obviously reported uh, in the papers when they drafted him. And he, by the time that he was like really getting people's attention, uh, I was in college at that moment and may have missed, I think it was 17 and 4, 19 and 4, something like that at Lynchburg. And then they bring him up to pitch in the Little World series for AAA, and I still remember the first time I had a, a real concept of who he was, or at least a quasi-concept. I lived across the hall from somebody else. I went to school out of town in Tampa, oddly enough, where Dwight Gooden is from, and I, I lived across the hall from a guy also from New York, and he said to me, you must be real excited about Dr. D. And I was like, who's Dr. D? I was thinking, <laughs> is that what they call Ron Darling? Because he had just come up. No, man, Dwight Gooden. Nah, he's supposed to be great. I, Dr. K. Well, he knew more about him than I did at that point so uh you know the, the the hype really came when he shows up in spring training the next year in with the major league team 19 years old the legend is correct about that and he's setting down major leaguers and he's making the case to be brought to the team and and w whatever organizational machinations there were about you don't bring 19 year olds up to start the season just went out the window because you got to remember that entering 84 again we've had daryl strawberry his rookie of the year <clears throat> season the Mets had begun to make a little bit of noise during that season it's the same season as I mentioned they bring up Darling they acquire Hernandez they're still a last place team you, you know things are changing you're, you're sore of them for letting Seaver go by the way because he was drafted that offseason an unnecessary move uh, also about free agent compensation but okay we're again spring training 84 we have been waiting to get good again forever and Dwight Gooden may be the key to that so as a fan you're thinking please tell me he's ready and Davey Johnson won that argument over Frank Ashen. And uh, so that that's how, how Dwight enters the picture. And the two of them in combination with Hernandez and a whole bunch of players. There was a bunch of good players on, on that 84 team. They finally break through. And we are now in that era that we are celebrating with this announcement. Well, I want to go back to 1980, right? That's when Daryl gets drafted. It's really the beginning of a new era. The Wilpons and Doubleday, they take over ownership of, of the team did it really feel like at the time this was a start of a new era kind of like how when uh, Steve Cohen took over for the Wilpons back in 2020 you kind of felt that you know what maybe we're going in the different direction now and it's you know more positive did it feel that way because I know the last couple of years of the Wilpons they were bad but I don't think they were as bad as that 77 8 9 uh, seasons for the Mets where it was uh, great tomb yeah it, it was a more binary time you're either good or bad it felt like as a baseball team as you know 
there were no wild cards. So you knew if you were contending or not. You were not contending in 1977, 78, 79. The bottom had completely fallen out of the New York Mets enterprise. Uh, Nelson Doubleday, and to a lesser extent, Fred Wilpon, because he just wasn't really put out there quite as much as the face mm -hmm. of the franchise. Uh, they were greeted as saviors. <laughs> Because again, the, the ownership, which was post Mrs. Payson, post, thank God, M. Donald Grant, and now uh, about to be post uh, Mrs. DeRolet, uh, Joan Payson's daughter, who had overseen the running of the organization into the ground. They're all gone. We have this new infusion of capital, this new infusion of optimism, of talking to what the Mets mean. Uh, as, you, you know, as you know, I co-host a podcast called National League Town. That, that's, uh, that, that name is not taken lightly. One of the things that Wilpon and Doubleday talked about, and then Frank Cashin, when they hired him to be GM, was, you know, the fact that this is New York's National League franchise, that this was traditionally a National League town, and that we want to get that goodwill back. and We want to build this organization into something that will bring people back to Shea Stadium and remember why they cared about the Mets in the first place. Uh, the last three years had been that brutal that it, it was a ghost town, and there was just this permeating sense of hopelessness. They have to remember June of 1980, when it's time to make that pick, the Mets are beginning to show signs of life on the field. A phrase I'm sure you've heard in your life, the magic is back. <laughs> that was the advertising slogan, which at first was laughed at that spring because the what they were trying to say was, and, and they ran ads with pictures of Jackie Robinson and pictures of Ralph Branca looking very depressed after giving up Bobby Thompson's home run, which I think told just something about where Fred Wilpon's allegiance lied because you probably should have shown Bobby Thompson being happy if you're trying to appeal to New York National League giant and Dodger fans those memories but I don't think it was so much getting guys from the park the idea was we're going to make you proud again we're going to make you feel something again and it was laughed at because we mean the magic is back they lost nine games last year and they got off to a hard start but then out of nowhere they started playing beautiful baseball and people like me who were 17 at the time believed like that's it we're here we're, you know, this is it and the fact that it was a new ownership and the fact they were painting the ballpark and putting in new seats and all that sort of thing it all it all seemed like the dawning of the age of aquarius if you will and then you put on top of that put on top of this team that's flirting with 500 and you know only five six games out of first place this daryl strawberry character so it's all gonna be great this is indeed a new era and then you know in a matter of months all you were really feeling out of all of that was well the seats are new and the paint job is new and daryl strawberry is coming because the 1980 mets fell apart because they weren't really that good and the new era thing had to go through the ringer because 81 was a terrible year there's a strike in the middle of that and 82 they make some big moves but it doesn't really help and again you you, you get to the uh just near daryl strawberry's debut and they're still a terrible team even though they brought back tom Seaver before letting him get away and they have george foster and dave kingman who they had brought back and you know little, little pieces here and there mookie wilson was was now on the team and we, we saw that that he was a talent and and could do things and we had glimpses of wally backman and hubie brooks and people like that but the team was nowhere after entering its fourth season under this ownership so patience had worn thin if you go back and look at the attendance figures as as one does uh, from game to game after siever comes back you know it's it's a huge it's a sellout almost and then there's nobody ballpark again for for a solid month basically and then they bring up daryl strawberry and attendance triples overnight which is to say it went from 5,000 to 15,000 that that's not an exaggeration but it was something and strawberry was the first legitimate sign that the new era was working in practice as well as theory as well as mood and you know again the Hernandez other big part of that so uh they were doing what they needed to do when I say they uh, ownership and management Frank Ashen at the front of it they drafted the right guy to get people excited and to produce once the excitement wore off, once the novelty of having a player named Strawberry wore off. You look back uh, in Mets history and you mentioned how Strawberry, you know, was even bigger than coming up than Reyes and Wright was. And you look from the inception 
of this team to the 80s. And Darrow really was the first hitter slugger that they developed was kind of this five-tool star. When Darrow came up, what was that moment where you were like, yeah, this guy's the real deal? Well, he he comes up on a Friday night. And of course, you want him to hit a home run every time he comes up. And he doesn't hit a home run that night. Uh, he had one foul to almost win the game. And I believe it was extra innings. Didn't quite stay fair. But he walks. He steals a, a base. He ends up scoring on George Foster's, uh, excuse me, I guess it was George. I believe George Foster hit the game that night. Dave Kingman hit the game tying armor. It's a hell of a game. <laughs> Whoever did what. But uh, you, you saw the fact that he had the speed as well as the power that had been ballyhooed. You saw early in the first month, when, uh, the first game where I actually saw him uh, later in May, some th- throw guys out at the plate. Uh, you saw this whole this whole idea of five-tool player wasn't one that I'm, I'm sure it existed before that, but it wasn't one that I remember around all that much when I was growing up, probably because the Mets never had one. <laughs> the Mets never had that power hitting, had that. They had Cleon Jones was a really good hitter, but he was not a what you'd call a power hitter. Uh, he was developed from within. And once you got past Cleon Jones in terms of developing hitters, they just didn't. Uh, you know, they developed some good players. But Harrelson was a terrific defensive shortstop who was not helpless with the bat, but that's not the same thing. So when you got to, to Daryl Strawberry, this was, you know, the, the next species of Met, you might say. Like, we never saw anybody like this. We saw it on other teams. We saw other teams have guys who could hit home runs and steal bases and, and make great throws and had the capability to make great catches. Uh, with Daryl, we had that all in one. So... You know, he struggled at first because he may not have been 100% ready the way not too many rookies are, but you gave him a couple of months to get his feet wet. Uh, you let him sit against some tougher left-handers, but after a while, he's in there every day, and he's figuring it out, and he has... Keith Hernandez next to him on the bench for whatever that's worth as far as having somebody to mentor him a little bit in a baseball sense. We had Rusty Staub on that team serve something of the same purpose. And you begin to, as a professional, mold your talent and get a little savvy. And you know, when he wins Rookie of the Year, that wasn't fait accompli necessarily because he had gotten off to kind of a crummy start. But you look from basically the end of June to the end of the season and you take his statistics and you double them. You know, that's those are MVP numbers. Um, <clears throat> the Mets were not the kind of club where anybody was saying they've got valuable players because they're such a good team. No, they were still a last place team. But uh, Daryl was on his way and there, there'll still be fits and starts for a couple of years. But him in the middle of that lineup is different from anything. <laughs> the Mets had had before and adding to that lineup you know became the mission after a while and you know after 84 you have Gary Carter and suddenly you have most of the team that New York remembers and fell in love with yeah adding to the lineup something that I hope they do uh, with uh, Pete Alonzo in the middle of the lineup as well which uh, I hope that they do re-sign him at some point and and build around him and Lindor uh, instead of people talking about trading him all so much Uh, once again I'm here with uh, Greg Prince author of many Mets books, and you can catch his words on the Faith and Fear and Flushing blog, as well as hear his voice on the National League Town podcast. Greg, Doc comes up, he wins 17 games and Rookie of the Year uh, to start, but it's really that 1985 season that really lit up New York and made the Mets must-watch every fifth day, 24-4 and with a 1.53 ERA. Is that 1985 run by Doc the best pitch season in Mets baseball? I know there could be a lot of debate about this because you know you you can't talk Mets pitching without talking about the franchise Tom Seaver but you know you look at the stats and uh maybe I think 1969 may have been Seaver's best season 25 and 7 with a 2.21 ERA I didn't get to see either so I'm leaning on you know your expertise here what do you think is is that Doc season the best season of all time what what a pleasant choice to make between Tom Seaver and Dwight Good this is a lot different from Buck Showalter filling out the bottom of his lineup card wondering, <laughs> you know, do I do I put Danny Mendick or Jose Arayus in there tonight? Um, I came along late in 69, so to me Seaver was a matinee idol at the time. I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of every start. I watched him pretty closely in 71. I'll always think of that as his greatest season with the 1.76 ERA and not enough run support to get 20 wins until the final day of the season and then be jobbed out of a Cy Young when they gave it to Fergie Jenkins. A great 
great pitcher nonetheless. Um, that said, and the the fact that Tom Seaver remained my idol and does so to this day, even in absentia. Yeah, I never experienced anything like Dwight Gooden's 1985. Uh, the fact that he was only 20 years old. He was coming off, you know, it's a cliche now, but it was an electrifying rookie season where we took that guy who I talked about earlier who lit up spring training and he makes a case for himself to be on the all-star team strikes out the side in the all-star game in 84 and is beginning to run into just a little bit of maybe he's out of gas maybe they're getting the best of a young pitcher and then you get to august and he turns it on like crazy and he strikes out 16 a couple of times he throws what was probably the first no hitter in mets history but for a scoring decision on an infield hit and you leave that season where he goes 17 and nine and wins rookie of the year and comes in second in the Cy Young voting and you ask well what's next and what's next was the numbers that you quoted 24 and 4 1.53 and the numbers don't quite do it justice somehow because I, I sat down a couple of years ago for an article and thought about how you know when we talk about oh that's the greatest pitching performance in Mets history whether you're talking about something like the the one hitter the imperfect game that a Seaver threw or the 10 strikeouts in a row that he threw en route to 19 or Bobby Jones's one hitter in the playoffs, Al Leiter's two hitter to clinch the playoffs, but things like that. And I was thinking how we never really bring up a Dwight Gooden start specifically, that one time that he did this or that. And I realized the greatest pitching performance, more so than the greatest pitching season, maybe Dwight Gooden's 1985, because it was just one long chain of practically uninterrupted excellence for, I think it was 35 starts. And you go and look at the September of that year. This is after he's already won 20 games. This is after he's already had amazing starts, amazing streaks. He broke Tom Seaver's in-season uh, consecutive wins streak uh, in August, the same day Seaver wins number 300 at Yankee Stadium, uh, incidentally. The Mets are in the, the pennant race of their lives, as far as I'm concerned, in, in September of 85. Doc has five starts. His earned run average throughout September is 0, 0.00. He throws either complete games or games of you know, nine innings and then the games go into extra innings and they decided they didn't want to push him any further uh the one game that he doesn't finish he goes eight innings and he hits a three-run homer during and they win by 11 so you don't need to use him uh as they're beginning to fall out of the race a little bit at the end of september he throws a, a shutout as if it is routine in chicago and and keeps them alive long enough to go to st louis with a chance to win in the first week of october or a chance to tie the cardinals i should say so you know, the entire season is like the entire season of worrying and wondering the way you do when your team is in that kind of a race because they're never more than three games ahead of the cardinals or or no, I think it was one game ahead of the Cardinals or three games behind the Cardinals for about three months, something like that. It is just, you know, nip and tuck, hammer and tong, every cliche you can think of. And, you know, you you trust Darling, but you, you're not sure he's going to throw a great game. You trust Sid Fernandez. You're not sure he's going to throw a great game. You hope for the best out of Ed Lynch and Rick Aguilera and anybody else they, they happen to have to start. And then Dwight Gooden pitches. And it's like, okay, we got to score a run. If we score a run, we're good. If we score two runs, we're great. And that's what it was like for all but a handful of 35 starts that year. So the fact that he's still only 20 and the fact that it is a red-hot pennant race. And by the way, there's some great pitching in the National League that year. It's, it's never talked about as the gear of the pitcher. Go, go look at John Tudor's uh, game by game, especially from June on. John Tudor had almost every bit as good a season as good in that year. Fr Fernando Van Valenzuela, who was not, not exactly a veteran at that point, but it ha had uh, some ups and downs. He has a renaissance that year. There are a few other uh, pitchers who do incredible things, but Doc is you know, so far above the crowd. He wins the Cy Young unanimously. Uh, if, if we had any kind of handle on metrics the way we do now, he would have won the MVP as well. I think he finished fourth because, God forbid, you give a pitcher uh, the most valuable player award. <laughs> and, you know, again, just the, the sense that, okay, he is the greatest pitcher who's ever lived. Uh, is, it might be a slight exaggeration, but not by much. You felt like in your mind, Mind, maybe you were you were skipping over Seaver and going back to Koufax. You were going back to Gibson's 1.12 year. Certainly, you, you're you're making room alongside Seaver in your mind as the greatest Met who's ever been. There's no doubt. No 
number 16 will be up there someday. You're not thinking about it in 1985 because he's 20 years old, but he is at that level. And the only thing I've seen like it since then, you know, mastery of the game from the mound was Jacob deGrom for a few years. And we know that Jacob deGrom didn't throw complete games because that's not what baseball is today. We know that Jacob deGrom, unfortunately, had a hard time staying in one piece. not making it sound like it's his fault, it's just the way it turned out. Although he had an in common, you know, not being scored for. Oh, go back and look at, at see some of Stevers and Gooden's starts, and it's like, oh, this didn't just start with Jacob deGrom. Um, but Gooden, Gooden with those 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 two years, and then into the beginning of 86, there, there is a 50-start span in his career. I, I believe the dates were August 11th of 84 to May 6th of 86. I, I went back and reread this the other day, so I'm, I'm not quite nuts enough to uh, carry this information around with me all the time. Uh, Gooden went 37 and 5, and the ERA, I believe, was under that 1.53. It was like 1.4, maybe. I mean, he was just unhittable for what amounted to a year and a half. And there was, you know, I just said unhittable, but really hardly. They, there was a hitter who could touch him. It was news. Uh, you may remember Met pitching, excuse me, Met hitting coach from a couple of years ago, Chili Davis. Chili Davis gained a measure of renown as the guy who could hit Dwight Gooden. It was that unusual. His famous quote was, because well, he was asked, how did you get that hit off of Dwight Good? And he said, he ain't got man. Well, most other National League batters were under the impression he was. I think uh, Tim Wallach of the Expos was another guy who had some success against him. But the, the fact that you can pick names out of, you know, hundreds of players, it's like, th- this is like a very difficult version of Immaculate Grid, where you can't come up with an answer for National League hitter and National League hitter who could hit Dwight Gooden, because it was that uncommon. And then it began to, to tail off. But uh, during that period, encompassing all of 85, no, never saw anything like it. Not among Met pitchers, and I, I won't claim to have watched every other team's pitchers closely, hardly any season has felt of a piece with Dwight Gooden's 85. You know, Seaver definitely had more brilliant seasons than Gooden had, but, you know, you get to compare one of those good seasons, those good seasons to each other, and, and you got a good debate there, and, you know, you could have even, if you know, all things had worked out, that 2021 season, that start that uh, Jacob DeGrom went on, where we were talking about the year of the pitcher, Gibson, stuff, you could add that season to it, if he could have stayed healthy unfortunately he couldn't another name that that has come up in the number retirement rumors is gary carter and we're going to get into that topic shortly but pertaining to dwight gooden how important was gary carter to the maturation of doc as a pitcher well i can only go mostly by what dwight gooden has had to say and he gives gary carter all the credit in the world for bringing him along through 1985 and some of the years beyond uh not that doc needed that much help it seemed uh in 84 remember his catcher that year was mostly mike fitzgerald another rook with an assist in a way from the first baseman keith hernandez who it was said wore out a path between first and the pitcher's mound because mike fitzgerald didn't know the league uh keith hernandez did but he wasn't a catcher so you bring gary carter in there and in addition to being a guy who's capable of hitting 30 or so home runs which was a huge thing in those days and driving in 100 or so runs again a huge thing in those days and not a bad thing to have now uh you had an all-around terrific defensive catcher who knew the league really well who'd been at it for about 10 years who still had some prime left but you know putting aside carter's defense and putting aside carter's hitting uh, he knew how to handle pitchers they they've all when i say they uh the members of that rotation of have all talked about that so you know you're already at the top of the league in the rarefied air uh, with Mike Fitzgerald as your catcher. No offense to Mike Fitzgerald. You bring in Gary Carter, you you're going to go to another league if you've got that trust and that communication between pitcher and catcher, and obviously they did. And I tell you, I mentioned the uh, MVP voting of 1985. Had I had a vote back in the day, long before looking at anybody's wins above replacement, I would have given co-MVP to to, uh, Carter and Gooden. They both had incredible uh, September, early October, and lifted that team a little further maybe than than it should have been because the the Cardinals were just insane that year. Uh, They ended up giving it to Willie McGee, who had a great year, hit 353, I want to say. But, you know, Carter transformed that team on top of Gooden and Strawberry and 
Hernandez and all they had done. So that was a brilliant acquisition in more ways, I think, than is are generally accepted. It's um, it's always frustrating to look back at the what could have been. But in all honesty, these two, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, they were on track for the Hall of Fame, right? If you look back from, you know, that that time, that late 80s time, those guys look like they were on track. If they could have stayed, you know, clean, stayed healthy, they were, would have been Hall of Famers. Yeah, sure seemed like it. Um, the funny thing is we, 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 we automatically turn our focus to 86 when we talk about that era, and rightly so. But neither one of those players was at his absolute met peak in 86. I mean, we, 84 and 85, we, we've just talked about with Gooden, and he would remain a very good pitcher, sometimes great pitcher for years to come. Uh, I, I think that's often a little overlooked. In Strawberry's case, he was this dangerous hitter who would go into funks from 83, 84, missed some time in 85 with an injury, which is probably why they didn't win the division. <laughs> And 86, he had a really bad August at home, I remember. And uh, there is video evidence of him being booed, I'm sure. Starting in 87, he moved to another level. And by 90, the year before he, the final regular season before he leaves for free agency, because Frank Cashin did not want to pay an exorbitant amount to any baseball player, it seemed, uh, he lifted the Mets on his shoulders and they nearly won the division as a result. Uh, he should have been the MVP in 88, uh, writers got enchanted with Kirk Gibson, Kirk Gibson being this uh, gritty, gutty guy. And in 87, you really could have made a case because 87 is the year Doc goes to rehab and Strawberry really comes into his own. He had some injuries in 89, but he had good numbers. What I'm saying is that they, they both were on, on a pace. And I, the reason I uh, dive in briefly to Strawberry there is I'm thinking back to a talk I came across a few years ago online of Bob Murphy, 1990s at the Learning Annex and People have paid money to sit and listen to Bob Murphy talk about the Mets and talk about baseball. And it's just absolutely marvelous to listen to for a number of reasons. But one of them, again, this is 1990, so we're talking Doc's seventh year. And he's saying just very matter-of-factly how Dwight Gooden is going to the Hall of Fame. It's you know Nobody's gasping. Nobody's thinking, uh, what, what, what the hell is Murph talking about? It was obvious. So, you know, Gooden comes up against injuries in the middle of 91. He's never quite the same on the mound. We know that he has the second suspension for cocaine, and he's never, even more, never quite the same, save for a couple of nights in the Bronx and a little, some good times with Cleveland. But um, yeah, that that is, that is the might have been, both of them, because, you know, Strawberry went to Los Angeles, had the one really good year, and then he has injuries and personal problems and all of that, and then he's a role player with the Yankees and helps them win. Isn't that great for us? Uh, <laughs> So, you know, these are two careers. If you didn't know who they were and you just looked at their numbers, you'd say these are already, if not exactly borderline, if you were in a generous mood, you'd say, well, I can see their candidacies. And then you you throw in from the positive side who they were, because they really meant everything in the scheme of the 1980s and Mets. And, you know, those years, even those years after 86, which are often sort of like, you know, dusted to the side in the in the last two minutes of the retelling of 86 you know those were teams that competed for division titles and pennants right down to the wire every single year uh you know when you persevered with the mets after 1990 you learned to appreciate the mets from before 1991 and after 1986 so the, you know those guys were front and center uh for so much of that you've, you've seen the montages you've seen the enormous picture of dwight good on the side of a building in manhattan you You've seen, you know, yep. the, the, the ads that Daryl Strawberry was in. I mean, they were huge stars on top of just being really good players in ways that very few Mets have been since then. Honest to God, other than Mike Piazza, I don't think anybody has really transcended celebrity as outside of the world of Mets fans. And maybe, you know, we don't care. We're Mets fans. They're, they're important to us. But you no, know, I always like to say about Mike Piazza, Mike Piazza is a Met my sister has heard of. My sister does not follow baseball. Um, even, you know, in the years of Reyes and Wright and Pete Alonzo later and DeGrom. My sister's never heard of any of those people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Strawberry and Gooden were a different story. Those Mets were a different story. Those Mets just mesmerized an entire aptly named 
Queens metropolitan area as as well as completely overwhelming baseball the way they did. So, you know, it, it always saddens me, not, not just the, gee, you know, their careers could have been better and they went through hell, and I'm really sorry about that, and they're not in the Hall of Fame. Where, where, where are their plaques? It saddens me a bit when, if you're ever scrolling through social media and there's just some random picture of one or both of them, that within the first three comments, it's always like, it's a tragedy what happened, it's terrible what happened, and they could have been so great. I said, you know what? Take a step back. They were great. <laughs> Those are amazing careers, intended amazing Mets-wise. Uh, they did things that I, I can still see in my mind. They did things that translate onto the baseball reference page. So when this news came down the other day of 18 and 16 getting their due, for, for all the little, gee, are we really retiring two more numbers, voices in your head maybe, and and that sense that well, they're, they're, they were not number 41 therefore nobody is worthy and that sort of thing. You say, you know what? what? What is the retirement of numbers for other than your greatest players and your biggest stars and the personalities who stay with you? And we're all rolled into one and I'm telling you, that's Daryl Strawberry and that's Dwight Gooden to a T. You know, I don't know how much they realized until, you know, until they started bringing back the Mets and doing these events, how important they were, you know, to the city, to the state. The Mets were running the 80s. I mean, as much as the Yankees run things now or they were, the Mets, like like your National League uh, town podcast, right? This town was a National League town and the Mets were the fabric of that. And the 80s was big part of that. Uh, I remember two instances. One of them I was at was the 20th anniversary of the uh, 1986 World Series. And this was the first time that Daryl Strawberry came back with the Mets jersey on to be honored. And the ovation that he got above all of the other players was something that I've never heard. And then you go two years into the goodbye Shay, the first time that Doc Gooden comes back. And you know what? I think he even got a louder ovation than, you know, Seaver. And because we always see Seaver, we always see Piazza. It was Dwight Gooden's first time back with the Mets jersey on. And he got a big ovation too. And, you know, at the very least they are honored by the Mets which is important to all of us and they will be immortalized with their numbers uh, being retired. Uh, we talked about Gary Carter before. It's it's an interesting slope, right? Because we all know Gary Carter helping the Mets, being that final piece to help the Mets win the 86 World Series. A lot of his big time stats and a lot of his big at bats came as well with the Expos, and that's why he's, I guess, in the hall. He he said he would have probably been a Met as a Hall of Famer, but they have him going in as an Expo. Is Gary Carter's number, or should Gary Carter's number, be retired by the Mets? Um, well, I think. The, the Mets had kind of set our expectations a certain way when they started giving out 8 and 16 and 18 and 17 for years. They gave them to, for the most part, whoever walked in the clubhouse and there was a vacancy. Uh, go back and, and check something like uh, ultimatemets.com and you'll see that, you know, Desi Relliford, player I like, by the way, wore number 8. Uh, Matt Galante, a coach, I believe he wore number 8 or some coach did. Uh, you know, and you could go up and down the 16s and 17s and 18s. And, sh- and shake your head a little bit. As Keith Hernandez has done uh, on the air, uh, I, th- I think a lot of that was, well, you can't break up with me, I'm breaking up with you <laughs> to a certain degree. Uh, Gary Carter going in with an Expos hat on his plaque, as much as it was n- would not have been my emotional choice, I could definitely see it. The reason the Mets wanted Gary Carter in 1984 was what he did with the Expos. That was a, a sensational career. Uh, I think the Gary Carter number retirement question, because we were so used to seeing number eight and those other numbers just kind of thrown around, uh, wasn't really, again, I, I can't speak for every single Mets fan, but I don't remember it being a particularly high profile topic for Mets fans until Gary Carter got ill. And then there was this sense of we should retire his number. And that was a very thoughtful sentiment, I thought. A very, very caring sentiment. And I think I think every player appreciates his number being retired. I think Gary Carter would have lapped it up with a spoon. It was the kind of guy he was. Not not that these guys aren't going to either. Uh, ju- just to step back very briefly to Doc and Daryl and the, uh, the receptions they got. I remember I was at both of those occasions you mentioned. Also, when they were inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame in 2010, which was the all-time overdue exercise in Mets history, because how did you have a Mets Hall of Fame without those two guys, arguably two of the most famous 
Mets ever. And I saw what it meant to them. And, you know, the, the, the Mets, to their credit, had done a great job. One, once they get around to doing Hall of Fame ceremonies, they, they have fantastic presentations. And But I got the sense, especially from Doc, that it mattered to him. And it's probably why the number mattered to him as much as, as it did whenever he was asked, because he would have been all in his rights to think, well, you know, why isn't my number up there? But anyway, um, we get into thinking about Gary Carter's number circa 2012, maybe 2011, when we learn that he's ill and he passes away. And we can't do anything about him not being here anymore, which is very sad. And I think that has lingered for a lot of people. And again, there are also a lot of people for whom Gary Carter was their favorite man. He was also a huge figure in the, in the 1980s, even though he wasn't homegrown and he wasn't here at the very beginning of it. This was, I, I don't even know who to, if, if you, God, I don't even know who to compare him to in the modern game. Not, not as a player, but just as a, that kind of figure who kind of takes over your psyche to a certain degree. And he was the absolute right person to have it that moment because Daryl is still young and kind of suspicious of what's going on around him going on around him Doc is kind of shy and Keith is the introspective type he will talk to reporters but that's because it's his job Gary was good with the spotlight and that's an important skill to have in addition to being a great player which he was so we get to 1985 he's a huge difference maker we get to 1986 he's a very huge difference maker as are several people but he's you could have given him the MVP of that World Series as much as you gave it to Ray Knight. And then kind of falls off um still hitting some home runs for the next couple of years famously has a three-month drought when he's trying to get to number 300 which was a big milestone for him and then he has one final year left where he's a sadly a shell of himself so if you want to be completely non-emotional about it you say two really good years in the two most you might i think they were the two most important back-to-back years in Mets history 85 and 86 and then three years where it wasn't particularly productive Um, Now, what I honestly think is all those years looking at number 41 by himself up in the rafters or over the the fence at Shea Stadium, wherever the retired numbers have been, I thought, again, how could there be, I love that 41 is there, 41 is in the class by himself. We have one player associated with 1969 retired. How do we not have any for 1986? I said that earlier. And I always thought the answer is you retire 17 and 18 and 16 and 8, because those are the four pillars of, of that team and when you it you know again I've, I've heard from people who say well you're gonna and I, I hate this exercise when we come to if you're gonna do it for them why don't you do it for him it's like you know what every case is individual and to me Gary Carter was to invoke yet another cliche a larger than life figure on those teams brought something very special again Mookie Wilson brought something special Jesse Orozco brought something special but Gary Carter was bigger than all that and Gary Carter to to use a phrase think I think Reggie Jackson used it about I brought my star to New York uh he brought his star to New York and it was magnified coming here you know kind of like Mike Piazza brought his star to New York and the magnification fit and you you don't have that 86 team the way it plays out and you don't have that era the way it plays out without Gary Carter playing a very large role so while I wouldn't say we need to retire a guy who had two really good seasons of Met and three seasons as a Met and they happen to win during one of them I would say that if you're talking about one of the four pillars one of the four tent poles as they say in the movie business of this franchise, that era, that bringing back what it meant to be a National League town, because again, that that experience in the 1980s was a restoration of what it was around here, 1969 into the 1970s, even before 1969, because New York was just waiting for the Mets to happen, even though they weren't quite ready to happen on the field. Uh, New York fell in love with that franchise. You had to give New York a reason to fall out of love with the Mets, which is what they just absolutely brilliant did uh, <laughs> under the uh, management of M. Donald Grant. So all of that comes back and really for the last time until the early, you know, the early 90s, it finally peters out where that sense of, yes, of course, to use your phrase, the Mets run this town. They haven't since, maybe for more than a few weeks here and there. And I don't know that it will ever be 
be the same. I don't know that we, we think in those terms anymore. We certainly don't. There, there certainly seem to be phasing out the idea of leagues uh, as a real defining principle of how we enjoy baseball. So that that's another story. But to um, see that this is the way I like to answer questions by not answering them, but I will answer. Uh, yeah, number eight, it would be nice. To, I, I won't feel the 86 story in the Raptors is complete. It's beautiful now that there's going to be three of them. I think it would be perfect when there's four. You mentioned them being the four pillars. I remember interviewing Nick Davis uh, once upon a time in Queens. He did the 30 for 30 and I got him to give me the, they they made a poster. It was great. It was the backdrop of New York City and I got it right here uh, in the background. The light's probably too much in the way of it, but it's Daryl, Doc, Keith, and Gary. So yeah, at at some point, it's probably, I would hope it would be the next one that Gary would get his number retired. Uh, It would be a nice little story there. And, you know, we all kind of know that the captain David Wright will go into the Hall of Fame at some point and he'll get his number retired. But is there anyone else deserving of a retired number in your eyes? Um, again, d- deserving is kind of a loaded word. I mean, my, my policy over the years has kind of morphed into they tell me who they're retiring and I will exult in it. Uh, I mean, 17 was so deserving and it finally happened. 24 was a cause of mine and that out of nowhere happened and I was just, you know, c- coming as a kind of a bookend to Gil Hodges going into the Baseball Hall of Fame and then getting that news. Uh, you know, you're in that, how could I ask for anything more? So you're absolutely right about number five. That's just a matter of logistics and everybody having a free weekend, I suppose, or whenever David feels it's appropriate. Um, beyond number five, you know, I often hear about or I'm asked about number seven for Ed Cranepool. And Ed Cranepool, I think, is one of those players who is kind of a category of his own because he did something nobody else will ever do, which is last forever as a Mets. 18 seasons, just a symbol of the Mets for all they were worth for a long time and who stayed around, stayed around town and stayed in people's consciousness for years and have had people rooting for him through his travails medically and even now is out there with an autobiography. Um, you look at Ed Cranepool's numbers and we're not talking about Daryl Strawberry numbers or Keith Hernandez numbers. If you wanted to say there'll never be another Met quite like Ed Cranepool, I could see it and I would exult in it. I'm not exactly campaigning for it because, you know, 18 seasons, half of them as a bench player, half of them waiting for him to live up to expectations because in a lot of ways he's the Daryl Strawberry of 1962. There was no draft in those days, but he was the bonus baby. They had to have the first sign of, oh my God, we have a young player to look forward to because all we have for the most part are these old players who aren't very good anymore. Uh, but again, that that to me, it's a little in the Willie Mays category of, no, you're not putting him in because of the incredible numbers he put up as a Met. Although, Rainpool's case, nobody's going to touch his, his games played. <laughs> nobody's going to touch his seasons played. That's worth something. Uh, but it's also worth something just to kind of have him in your heart, maybe. And, and and the Team Hall of Fame, which I don't think they've done nearly enough to raise the profile of on a going basis. Again, they do great work when they do induct people and the ceremonies are fantastic, the videos are fantastic, the speeches are touching. And then it seems everybody forgets anybody is in it because, you know, again, Doc, Doc and Darrell went in in 2010. Jerry Kuzman went in in 1989. Keith Hernandez went in in 1997. It's almost like you've had to refresh their credentials by retiring their numbers. Um, the other number, the same number, seven, Jose Reyes. I don't see how on earth you would retire number seven for Ed Cranepool and then just say, thanks, Jose, because Jose Reyes really did excel in that number and really was the, yes, I'm going to say it, running mate of David Wright in their best years. And I think when you, when you retire a number, you're paying tribute not just to the player, but you're paying tribute to the era. And by the era, I mean not just those teams, but the fans for whom who lived through that era. Well, speaking about the- that, era how about you know this is going to get a lot of because everyone remembers just one at bat but (laughs) carlos beltran number 15 uh, another five tool player maybe you talk about daryl strawberry as you know top of the line five tool there carlos beltran right up there 
with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you get deep, not you don't have to get that deep into that era again. If if, if we were go- going to use the tentpole thing again, Beltran's right there with Reyes and Wright. I think the difference uh, to us to an emotional degree is that Beltran was a bit of a mercenary, which is okay. That's allowed in baseball. I think the reason I lean certainly toward if if we're doing seven for Cranepool, that we we give it the Bill Dickey Yogi Berra number eight. They they get him together treatment that the Yankees gave. Sorry to invoke the Yankees, because uh, I can't look at seven without thinking about Jose Reyes, nor can most people uh, who live through Jose Reyes. And again, there are there are downsides. There are These are not, I don't want to use slam dunk because that's a basketball term. Mm -hmm. These are not can of corn, shall we say, decisions necessarily. Uh, Beltron at his peak was as good a Met as there's ever been as a position player. The five-tool thing doesn't need qualifiers in his case. He really was, maybe with the exception of Juan Lagares, the greatest defensive center fielder the Mets ever had. Uh, A great, despite a particular at-bat in Game 7, a great postseason player during that one postseason and we had him uh, did everything and play, you know, overcame injuries. I know he got a lot of flack. Yeah. Uh, there were people, again, I, I hate to resort to it. There were people who said, but I remember it, it was a, a running thing in 2010 because the Mets had been playing pretty well without him. Uh, Angel Pagan had filled in well and was like, no, no, we're, uh, Beltron is going to come in and wreck the chemistry of the team. And as it happened, it wasn't that good a team anyway. But what I remember about Beltron, but beyond all that, he comes back and 2011 healthy for the first time in three years, he goes to right field without complaint. He could have been a prima donna. He could have said, I'm the center fielder, because that's a big deal. Goes to right field, leaves Pagan center field. He makes the all-star team as a right fielder. He hits three home runs in one day. He has a sensational first half and then some, and he sets himself up for the trade that brought Zach Wheeler, which I'm sure wasn't his goal. I want to be great trade bait for, for the Mets. But as long as he was healthy, you know, give or take some getting adjusted to New York type of things. He was a sensational player. Uh, does he have that that little extra something? I think that when you say, wow, he's one of the greatest Mets ever, therefore we retire his number. I guess in my heart of hearts, I'm not totally convinced, but I, I understand where people are coming from, people who may have come of age with that team. And again, the one thing you, you will not hear from me if they do announce anybody you know, within reason, I won't be there to say, how could have they done this? I will find a way to exult in it and celebrate it because I think it's a great thing when it happens. We're not going to run out of numbers. We're not, God forbid, the Yankees. <laughs> and given every, <laughs> you know, we 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 are we are a little bit with like number seventy six warming up in the bullpen. It feels like uh, a little more often than we used to, but uh, you know, we got plenty of numbers. I don't think that's a problem. Uh, you know what? But I mean, there, there is that layer of player, and I think Reyes is above it. I think Beltran is above it. God knows Carter is above it, and uh, even Cranbull because he is a special case. That that layer of players that's Mets Hall of Fame worthy, maybe already in there. Who there? You just look at them and you think, well, you know, Bud Harrelson was such a huge part of the Mets for so long. How was number three not retired? You know, he was an all star a couple of times won a gold glove championship player all that how's jerry grody 15 not retired for him how does he not retired for cleon jones and you can move through history and kind of go through that in your mind and how is number one every you know number one is always mookie wilson you know except for when it was lance johnson or Ahmed rosario in your mind um you can do that for a lot of players maybe they're just as, as i don't want to say cruel but as as stern as it is somewhere you kind of have to draw a line and i think you just kind of have to know at some point that we love this guy he was great. I mean, Beltran should be in the Mets Hall of Fame tomorrow. Things like that. Again, I, I think one of the things the Mets need to do is again bump up the profile of the Mets Hall of Fame. So it's not just we have the the uh, we have the ceremony. Go look in the closet off the rotunda and go enjoy his plaque. Maybe find a way to display that more extraordinarily throughout the ballpark, and maybe find a, another layer of honor. You know, amazing contributors, amazing achievers. I think you're doing a great job honoring the Mets past at the top line now and you did a great job with the old timers day things like that uh keep it coming is what i'm saying give everybody every every fan from every generation a chance to, to feel good about what they've invested in emotionally all these years so if that's a few more numbers that's great um if, if they were to release an edict tomorrow that we're 
retiring number five and then we're done. Uh, I feel like it would feel very sad in a way because I, there's always nice to have these things to look forward to. But I think there's a, a part of me that would accept it. Say, okay, there's there's Wright and there's these other guys and maybe we wait for you know Pete Alonzo to earn it or we forgive Jacob DeGrom or whatever it is we do. But I, I hope that's not the case. I, I like when this happens. I, I like expansive embrace of, of a team's history, a team's individuals, a team's memories. And call me, you know, not discerning enough for your taste if, if you're the type who says they're they're, they're watering it down. I, I don't think you're at this level and you're watering it down. Yeah, I was talking with uh, John Struble of Mets Rewind, and it, it's nice to see that the Mets are, I don't want to say finally, but just maybe like on a yearly basis, honoring the franchise and making us feel the way we have felt all along about their history, putting it out there. And, you know, obviously they have the Hall of Fame and everything, but it, it's definitely great to see that the the Mets are finally, uh, you know, honoring some players that deserved it a long time ago. So uh, congratulations to Doc Gooden and congratulations to Daryl Strawberry. Greg, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me today. Please let everyone know uh, what you're working on and where they can follow you on social media. Uh, I am on X. Is that what it's called now? Uh, you might know it Twitter. Twitter. People still call it Twitter. X. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever, whatever it's called, and whoever owns it, I'm on it at at, no, at Greg underscore Prince. I'm on Facebook. Faith and Fear and Flushing has a uh, a Facebook page that I operate. I'm on National League Town, uh, the, the podcast uh, that talks about a lot of this stuff in addition to you know what's going on day to day or week to week. I do that with my friend Jeff Heisen. I do Faith and Fear and Flushing with my friend Jason Fry. And hopefully people will, will come around to faithandfearandflushing.com. Uh, check us out on a going basis. Uh, you know, it's funny. When, when we started blogging way back in 2005, you know, there, there was this idea that uh, it was amazing to have anybody writing about the team when the season was over. You know, you'd, you'd open up the newspaper and you were grateful if there was any sliver of baseball news between November and March. And now we, we all do it in our own way, so it doesn't seem all that amazing. But um, we'll be here. And the podcast uh, c continues on. And anybody wants, wants to check out those books you mentioned, I would appreciate that too. Thank you. All right, Greg. I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. That was Greg Prince, author of many Mets books. And I will put a lot of the links in my description for the podcast episode this week. And you can catch his words, like he said, on the Faith and Fear in Flushing blog, as well as hear his voice on the National League Town podcast. That's going to wrap it up for the Subway to Shea podcast. You can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Subway to Shea. Listen, subscribe to the Subway to Shea podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Turn on your notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. You can rate the show and leave comments for me to review. Subway to Shea's also on YouTube. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you can get all the notifications and updates from my channel. You can also leave comments, a huge thumbs up, which helps out a lot. And uh, if you enjoy, just make sure you leave the comments there for me. Also, uh, before I forget, I write for Rising Apple. That can't be forgotten. Rising Apple is the New York Mets site on the fan side and network. You can read my articles by going to risingapple.com. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter or X as it's called now at Rising Apple blog and the fan sided network at fan sided. Thank you everyone for tuning in. For Anthony Rivera, this is the Subway to Shape podcast.